0: Welcome to Wyoming, my 307. I'm Carla Mowell, and I'm proud to be a fourth-generation Wyomingite. Dad left Wyoming in his 20s to work in the oil business, also known as the fossil fuel industry. Have you ever wondered why we call them fossil fuels? Well, that phrase is based on the old misconception that oil deposits were made from the dead bodies of dinosaurs. Now I understand the Sinclair Oil Company logo of a green dinosaur, and that's what today's episode is about, dinosaurs. So let's start with today's dot on the map, with a population of 284 Medicine Bow, Wyoming. The name Medicine Bow comes from Native Americans. Its first people were Arapaho, Cheyenne, and Sioux. They traveled yearly to the foot of the nearby mountains to harvest ash trees to make their bows. Because this timber made for excellent bows, they named the mountains and the river Good Medicine Bow. The term Good Medicine refers to the power or spirit in a person, event, object, or natural phenomenon i got this from an article that i linked in the show notes the current town of medicine bow was founded in 1868 as a watering station for the railroad back then steam trains needed to stop and refill with water every 10 miles the water stations became commercial centers even today you'll see evenly spaced little towns across our country without highways and cars this meant moving materials by freight wagons to outlying areas. In January 1878, the Laramie Sentinel wrote that the Traving Freighting Company supplied over 3 million pounds of supplies to military posts north of Medicine Bow. Soon, Medicine Bow became the largest cattle shipping point for the Union Pacific Railroad. But Medicine Bow, it wasn't done growing. First railways, Highways were next. The Lincoln Highway was the dream of car aficionados and business people alike. In 1909, their vision was to connect America with one single highway, starting at Times Square in New York City and traveling all the way to Lincoln Park in San Francisco. But, hmm, where should it go through in Wyoming? Well, Medicine Bow was in fierce competition with nearby Elk Mountain, Wyoming. Mayor August Grimm knew they had to do something really big for Medicine Bow to stand out. So he built the biggest and fanciest hotel between Salt Lake City and Denver. That hotel is the Virginian, and you can still visit it today. Mayor Grimm was from Saxony, Germany. Why would he name his hotel in Wyoming? the virginian well marketing he named his hotel after the famous western novel which later became a movie and a tv show the book's author owen wister spent quite a bit of time in wyoming here he visited gathered anecdotes and experiences and then turned them into novels the virginian is considered the first in its genre of western novel and it was a huge hit He drafted that story in Medicine Bow, and in fact, in Chapter 2 of The Virginian, Worcester describes Medicine Bow as, quote, 29 buildings in all, one coal chute, one water tank, the station, one store, two eating houses, one billiard hall, two tool houses, one feed stable, and 12 others that for one reason and another I shall not name. Hmm, can anyone say ill repute? the town and the hotel still play off the most famous line in the novel in which the villain of the story named trampas calls the virginian a son of a well you know how that ends and the virginian he sets his hand on his gun and he gently says when you call me that smile i found that interesting because trampas in spanish means cheating Trampas. At over a century old, the Virginian is still a working hotel and restaurant and is definitely worth a stop to have a bite to eat. And August Grimm's ambition definitely paid off because the Lincoln Highway was built through Medicine Bow. Unfortunately, in 1974, I 80 was built and the Lincoln Highway and Medicine Bow reverted back to a sleepy back road. Mayor August Grimm would be sad but his hotel remains. Seven miles east of Medicine Bow, on private land, you find Como Bluffs. This site became famous for an abundance of dinosaur fossils. In March of 1877, the Medicine Bow station agent William Reed went antelope hunting and soon discovered large fossilized bones along the bluffs. They are in what geologists today call the Morrison Foundation. Coincidentally, two other fossil beds in the Morrison Foundation were found in Colorado that very same month outside of Canyon City and another in Morrison, Colorado. The discoveries in Colorado and Wyoming sparked the famous Bone Wars. This was basically a rivalry between two paleontologists. And by rivalry, I mean They hated each other's guts and did everything they could to undermine the other's work. Those adversaries were Othniel Charles Marsh of the Peabody Museum of Natural History and Edward Drinker Cope, who lived up to his middle name of Drinker, from the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philly. They started off great. They were working together. But the rivalry began when Marsh pointed out that Cope had incorrectly put the skull of a dinosaur on the tail end instead of the neck. Needless to say, Cope did not welcome this constructive criticism. From then on, they spied on each other, they salted each other's digs with false fossils, and delighted in each and every mistake that the other made. Rumor even has it that Marsh named the fossil coprolite after Cope's. Coprolite is fossilized dinosaur poop. It turns out that's not true, but it's still funny. Even with all their shenanigans, their work resulted in finding over 250 dinosaur species. Not bones, not dinosaurs, species. And this greatly advanced the study of dinosaurs in America. Their collections are still housed today in museums such as the Peabody, the Smithsonian, the Carnegie in Pittsburgh, and the American Natural History Museum in New York City. On the Lincoln Highway, which is now Highway 30, five miles east of Medicine Bow, you'll find the famous Fossil Cabin. In its heyday, Ripley's, believe it or not, built it as the world's oldest building. And it definitely is one of a kind. How can it be the world's oldest building? Well, (laughs) this roadside attraction is constructed out of dinosaur bones and I have a picture of it on the website. The story in my family is that the building is radioactive and I searched and searched but could not find any evidence of that online. But I did find out that dinosaur bones are actually often radioactive. So enough of my amateur explanations. My guest today is Eric Qualley a geologist from the Bighorn Basin of Wyoming who left and then came back and discovered dinosaur footprints less than 10 miles from where he grew up. Could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and what brings you to your knowledge of dinosaurs and geology?
1: Sure. I, I grew up in Grable. My family's always been a very outdoor family. We spent a lot of time hiking in the hills and up in the mountains when I was a kid. So I was predisposed, I suppose, to geology. My One of my aunts, my mom's sister, who grew up in Wyoming on a dude ranch out here, she had gone off to college and gotten an undergraduate degree in geology. And so as I was growing up, we weren't using sort of the general names for a lot of the local fossils. We would we would actually use the scientific names, and I just thought that's what they were. I never really thought about geology as a major. When I was uh, in high school, I was going to go off and be a lawyer. When I got down to Laramie, I was sort of checking out some places or some degrees that I might want to get. I didn't want to be a pre-law major or an English major, so I sort of stumbled into a geology class my sophomore year, down there and loved it, found it easy. And actually at that point found it more interesting than law. And so I just went through my undergraduate. I ended up transferring to Iowa state because their field camp is right next door to where I grew up here in shell or where my grandparents had their place. My dad was good friends with, uh, Carl Vondra, who's the director of the field camp, he kind of convinced my dad and myself that maybe Iowa state was a good place for me. And so I went there and ended up getting my PhD there. Once I got into geology, I never looked back. I actually applied to the University of Wyoming's law school when I got my undergraduate degree. I spent two weeks there and found it boring, so I moved on. went back into geology at Iowa State.
0: So why is Wyoming an important place for learning about geology and dinosaurs? Northern Wyoming, especially because of its very arid climate,
1: has so much of the rock exposed. It's not I mean, if you go out east to Indiana or Oklahoma or places like that, you know all the all the soft rock, the shales, the mudstones they're all covered with grass or trees. The only things that stand out are very thick beds of limestone or sandstone, but in Wyoming, northern Wyoming, you can see everything you can see where sandstones are and where if you walk along a sandstone outcrop, you can see where it disappears. You can see the mudstone, so it's and the structures are very interesting. So you have rocks that are tightly folded or faulted, and you can actually see that with aerial photographs or even just on the ground. And so it makes it a very logical place for people to learn about geology, the various aspects of geology. So it's just really it's a, our lack of vegetation and our uplifts, our mountains, our hills, which expose everything so well.
0: Right. I mean, that's one of the things, you know, on our long drives from one place to another here in Wyoming, you can just look out the window and just if you're not a geologist, which I'm not, it just makes you wonder, like, why is that piece sticking out? And sure oh what happened here? You know, everything looks different here. The rocks look completely different than it did a mile ago. And that's just really all of the different layers being exposed in one small area.
1: Yes, you know, and in fact, if you learn the geology of of the Grable Shell area, you learn all the various rock formations, you understand, you know, you you can see the folds and the faults. If you learn that information here locally, you can take and apply that all along the, the Rocky Mountains. You can go up into northern Montana, see similar rock sequences. You can go down to Utah, Colorado, see similar rock sequences. And so it's really once you learn this language of the rocks up here, you can you can take that language and go down and and apply it to um, like Utah, for instance.
0: Right, and is that language? That's an interesting way of putting it. When you say the language of the rocks, could you just go into that a little more?
1: Yeah, it's it, so. For instance, the 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 red rocks that we have out here at Shell, they're they're from a formation called the Chugwater Formation. And it's composed of reddish siltstones and mudstones and a few sandstones. Well, that rock unit basically retains that same character with some changes, but essentially the same character all the way down to southern Wyoming and into Utah. And so once you see that big, thick red rock unit, you, you learn to recognize it all around the Rocky Mountain region. And down in Utah, they call it the Moenkopi Formation. Um, you know, southern Wyoming is called Chugwater. Up here, it's called Chugwater, but but it's it's a unit which is recognizable almost no you know anywhere you go in the in the Rocky Mountains, certainly within the forty eight states.
0: So when you see it, like I've seen something like that in Colorado, but I think they call it Morrison, but it looks very similar.
1: The Morrison is a, is a younger rock formation, and that one consists, uh, contains a lot of dinosaur bones. And there are changes because the Morrison doesn't have the really thick red beds, the big cliff forming red beds that you see in the Chugwater formation. The Morrison is unique in that uh, it also has some red beds. They tend to be thin. There's a lot of thin sandstones, but it's loaded with dinosaur bones. And in Colorado, uh, you go down to Denver, the Morrison Formation, which is where it was first sort of described in detail, abundant dinosaur bones. Uh, You go up to Como Bluffs in uh, uh, north of Laramie. I'm trying to think of the name of the town, not Rock River, but... uh,
0: Oh, Medicine Bow.
1: (laughs) Medicine Bow, yes. You know, it, it has the same character, but still loaded with dinosaur bones. And that's, you come up here and you can recognize the Morrison no matter where you go. It helps if you understand the color of the rocks and the character of the rocks immediately below it and immediately above it, because that helps you sort of narrow the Morrison down and you start poking around and you find dinosaur bones.
0: So if I see, let's go back to Chugwater. If I see Chugwater here in the Bighorn Basin and then down south in southern Wyoming, does that mean that there's more stretches of it underground? Like the fact that you see it in two places that are so far away What does it tell us? Like it broke apart or got jumbled up? How does that work?
1: So if you take a stack of papers and you put, and the papers are different colors. So you take one sheet of paper and you place it on a table. And then you take another sheet of paper and place on top of that. And then a third sheet, different color, and place it on top of those two and just stack up your sheets of paper and then you fold those papers, so you you put it into a bow. If you fold that thing downward, you form basically what's called a syncline. And the way they tell geology students to remember synclines, synclines will hold water. Anticlines is where it bows up and the water would run off. But anyway, so you have a, a big syncline where you have your second or third sheet of paper. It's now deep down in the rock and and where you are holding it with your hands you can see that red sheet of paper that's in your hands, your left hand and your right hand, but you can't see it down below because it's been pressed all the way down into the subsurface or downward. And so if you took a a drill bit and went out into the center of your anticline and drilled down, you'd go through a number of layers, but eventually you would get to that third red layer that you can see on the edges of the basin, you would get to it down below. And so, yes, you're right, those layers do extend underground and they have been broken and segmented. They've been broken by faults. They've been folded. They've been distorted. However, they're still there someplace unless they've been popped to the surface and eroded away.
0: It's interesting. It makes you look at things differently. It's like you see in 3d or something. I guess we all see in 3d. You, your imagination is in 3d. You can see all the different layers in your imagination
1: Yes, and that's that's one of the keys to training a geologist. A person has to be able to take that image and think about it in three dimensions in their mind before they can become an effective geologist. And once they do that, then they realize, wow, these rocks were at the surface at one time. They're originally sediments that were being deposited by rivers or in deltas or offshore, you know, on sand dune or sand complexes just offshore. Now they've been hardened and turned to rock and subsequently folded and faulted. And once they understand that, then they really start thinking about deep time. How much time does it take to deposit a, a, a bed of sediments that will ultimately become a formation like the Chugwater or the Morrison? How much time does it take to deposit that? And then you've got to layer additional deposits over the top of it, which means your basin has to be constantly subsiding. And then at some point, mountains start popping up. So you're under compression and you're folding and faulting these things. And once a person gets that in their mind, then they start realizing just how deep time is and what 100 million years can actually mean and what you can do to a rock. You can distort a rock like a sheet of paper, but it takes millions and millions of years because it has to be done under pressure, increased temperature, and very, very slowly.
0: Deep time is kind of one of those things that it blows your mind when you think about it, you know, because it's hard for us to imagine more than a 100 lifetimes, you know, and go into that huge scale of time, just like space. So if we were to go back into time and just come through this whole area of the Bighorn Basin, what would it look like? Like if we, I know we can't, but if we were driving through in, let's say, the Jurassic era, what what would we be seeing?
1: Well, initially, you would you would see a very arid coastline where you would have very shallow, sort of tidal flats, tidal ponds. Uh, it would look something like uh, Arabian Peninsula, the Arabian Gulf. Uh, and and it would be very arid and you would have uh, maybe uh, sand dunes and you would have tidal flats that would have a lot of, that uh, would have a lot of salt crystals on them. And you'd have shallow ponds that would be hyper saline. That would be the first sort of Jurassic deposit that you would, uh, or world that you would encounter. And that ultimately ended up creating a formation called the Gypsum Spring Formation. And out of the gypsum spring, some of those gypsum deposits were so thick that they were able to mine that gypsum that was created in that Persian Gulf-like environment. They're able to mine it for wallboard, and that's what the plant is just south of Lovell, between Lovell and Gravel. And then as you sort of continue up through time, then the ocean starts deepening in this area sea level sort of comes up and down but it starts looking maybe a little bit more like the bahamas where you have white sand beaches when the sea level is down and then when the seas come up it's deep enough that you have animals called ichthyosaurs which were these dolphin-like reptiles or plesiosaurs which were sort of um um well i hesitate to use the term but uh, the image that a lot of people have of the loch ness monster with the long Reptile neck and the block body with the flippers on either side, the plesiosaurs, and in the ocean would be would uh, be a very warm sort of marine environment. you'd have squids, you'd have ammonites, and then you know periodically the sea level would drop, and you might have a, a white sand beach like South Florida, the keys or the Bahamas, and then, as you sort of continue up through the Jurassic, that seaway was which would be called the Sundance Seaway retreats to the north and that coastline is now somewhere up in northern Montana or into Canada and the Morrison Formation comes in. And the Morrison Formation would be something like sort of East Africa, Savannah type environment where um, uh, you would have seasonally wet uh, climate, you would have rivers that would uh, experience seasonal floods you would have an abundance of dinosaurs, these very large sort of iconic Jurassic dinosaurs, the big sauropods, the allosaur, the meat-eating dinosaur allosaur, all of which have been found in the local quarries here, dinosaur quarries, the stegosaurus, the spike-tailed dinosaur. So all of these uh, sort of would have existed at sort of the end of the Jurassic. So you change from a very arid coastline to a more of a normal marine coastline, to uh, a completely uh, non-marine Africa savanna type environment.
0: Yeah, and all of those things that you mentioned is what creates what we're seeing now. Like I heard you talk about tidal flats and, you know, that's where the footprints are that, that you guys found, which was such an amazing find. I know folks who have been walking around that area for years and, are pretty knowledgeable about geology in this area, but hadn't even noticed that. So it just takes like really knowing what what to look for and and in what setting. To be able to see the ripple marks and to know that dinosaurs walked there and those ripple marks are from the water is just an amazing experience.
1: You know, it's interesting because I, I have talked with some folks that lived here, you know, grew up here. And one fellow in particular, Lauren Good, who's a, a local fellow, he, he grew up out on Beaver Creek. Lauren's, I think, about 90 years old now, very sharp, very intelligent person, but uh, ended up getting a degree in geology and worked for Exxon for a number of years in the Gulf Coast. But Lauren talked to me about, he had an uncle who uh, referred to that area as the area where the turkey tracks are. Right, Lauren had never seen them, but his uncle knew where they were. And so I think there were some local folks that saw them, just perhaps never really thought much about them, just kind of accepted that there they were. I guess we were different in that, you know, as a scientist, I realized their importance and so got interested in them. But there were some local folks who saw those things, but just never really made too much out of it. And just kind of accepted it because they'd grown up around all of this stuff. And it became sort of common. In that area on that road that leads out to Red Gulch, there are petroglyphs. And sadly, some of them have been badly uh, destroyed or or, uh, covered with modern graffiti. But these Native American petroglyphs, there are images that look like turkey tracks. And so... You know, my hypothesis is, and I've talked with some archaeologists about this, is, and it doesn't seem to be a far-fetched idea, is that the local, the Native Americans that lived in this area also saw those things and probably attached some sort of spiritual significance to them because they were depicted, I believe, on these the rock art. So people have, have seen these things for, who knows, a thousand years. I, we were, I guess, the first scientists to really sort of do something with them.
0: You mentioned the science of of dinosaurs. The early science of dinosaurs was called the Bone Wars because it was pretty brutal, the competition between scientists to find different dinosaurs. And that history of the Bone Wars is actually set in Wyoming, even though it was worldwide. A lot of the a lot of the interfighting was here in Wyoming. Could you do? Do you have anything you could share with us about that?
1: Yeah, that was the 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 two dominant personalities were uh, paleontologist uh, Othniel Marsh, uh, who was with the Peabody Museum out east, and Edward Drinker Cope, who was I think with the Philadelphia Academy of Sciences scientists or sciences, and Cope. Well, both of these fellows had very strong personalities, and initially they started out as friends young in their career, but then sort of got into this competition of finding the most, the biggest, the first. It dominated their lives to the point where they could think of apparently almost nothing else other than trying to best their competitor and ridiculing them or humiliating them or pointing out some sort of shortcoming in their work. And so, yeah, that that they would spend much of their own personal fortunes sort of funding these expeditions and self-publishing. I don't know about Cope, but from what I've read, Marsh ended ended up at the end of his life as being really somewhat of a bitter old man, even though it was a rather unsavory way of doing science. And there was some rather sloppy science that was done along the way. They did popularized dinosaurs and they did push forward the science in ways that had never been anticipated before and they they in many cases brought these fossil bones to life and so you could argue that yes it was a it was a very negative way of doing science not the way that would be in, at all uh, accepted today but but they did push forward on the science but there were some pretty nasty things that were done like leaving quarries at the end of the field season and blowing up whatever remained with dynamite to keep the competitor from finding them and uh, trying to put spies into the other's camp to find out what they were doing or getting wind of a early uh, find. And then the other person would try to publish something on that find, even though they may not have much material to work with at all. So I, I tell you, there's some great stories that came out of that period, all in the late eighteen hundreds, for the most part.
0: And like you said, it really popularized it and made it so that it did become more of a science later. <laughs> it got a little more uh, cooperative. All of that infighting—is that still how it operates today? How does it compare to competing for dinosaur finds today, or is there even a competition?
1: Well, there's always a competition, and you you can identify several personalities of uh, paleontologic groups. Um, it's It's been a while since I've sort of engaged in, in some of that, but there was, you know, Paul Sereno was a, a, one of the personalities. He's still around. He's at the University of Chicago. Bob Bacher, who I, I, I don't know much about Bob Bakker anymore, but he sort of kicked off the, the modern uh, interest in dinosaurs with a book called Dinosaur Heresies. And he went way out on a limb in some of his interpretations which a number of paleontologists disagreed, but there was also some very innovative thinking in there about warm-blooded dinosaurs, et cetera. There's a fellow up at the Museum of the Rockies, I think he's retired from there now, um, Jack Horner, uh, one of the consultants on the movies Jurassic Park. And they all have their students, they all have their acolytes. uh, And you can go to the scientific meetings like the... uh, SVP, a Society of Vertebrate Paleontology meetings, which meet once a year. And you can almost identify their students and the people who are sort of in their camp by the way they dress, the way they act. And so those personalities are still there. But uh, I think the science is being done now under the more of a rigorous scientific method, where ideas are hatched, tested, and sort of gone through that sort of formal, looking for analogs, et cetera, et cetera. So the science is is more rigorous than it used to be, but the personalities are still there and the competitiveness is still there.
0: Well, I suppose that so long as there are still big finds to be had, there's still going to be competition for them.
1: Absolutely. And a lot of it boils down to egos. And I've met some of these people and, and some of them are, you know, they are personalities. I mean, Paul Sereno, for instance, was, I think, at People Magazine, he was voted one of the 100 most beautiful people in the prime of his career when he was a young scientist getting started. So, I mean, I'm sure that had an impact on how he sort of <laughs> viewed himself.
0: Yeah, how could it not? Yeah. So Are there are there current digs in Wyoming today? And are any of them, like, how can the public just at least get in and see that?
1: Well, I I, I can't. I can't talk about uh, so much about current digs now. Uh, I did talk to a BLM scientist yesterday. Uh, she she actually uh, permits dinosaur operations in the Bighorn Basin. And she said that because of COVID, I think it was American Museum Digs that was between Hyattville and Tinsleep has, has not been operating this operated this year nor last year. There are commercial operations. I think the Wyoming Dinosaur Center out of Thermopolis, I haven't checked their website, but I suspect they still have active digs going on down there. But I I think COVID has really curtailed operations. I know Kirby Sieber, who has a uh, Museum in Switzerland, who operated the HAL Quarry for a number of years here uh, and was responsible for finding Big Al and Big Al 2 and some amazing dinosaurs out of the old HAL Quarry. From my understanding is that he has the lease on the Como Bluff dig. So he's gone back into where the, some of the sites where the original bone wars were sort of held. He's, he's gone in and re-excavated down there, but he hasn't been active for this summer or the previous summer.
0: That's a good point, because as technology changes, you can go back to old sites and learn more information with new technology.
1: Yeah, and more careful excavations and, yeah, I mean, things that they didn't necessarily look for back in the 1800s. They were primarily after the bones, but and they were pulling them out as fast as they could, oftentimes with untrained personnel. But now, you know, people are interested in trying to find evidence of skin impressions, for instance, or... Uh, Right. You know, evidence of impression of, of cartilage that may have protruded off of the backs of some of these animals. And so I think their preparation and excavations are much more careful. Now, there are commercial operators who are in it for simply the money. So they're looking for a skull. They may use a backhoe to try to get something out. That's generally not accepted so um, by the more professional. But, yeah, it's, there's a lot to be learned from the science.
0: I heard a really cute story. I have to verify it. I was in Wheatland at a at their museum there, and the docent there was telling me that there was a, some kind of dinosaur dig happening. Their dinosaur center was closed that day from construction. but there's have been historic and still current digs, and the scientists take stuff out. And then they have a location where they lay things out and a local group of older ladies spend the winter cleaning the bones. Like they train them how to actually go through that process. And I was just like, that is the cutest, you know, (laughs) instead of quilting, they're cleaning dinosaur bones.
1: That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And, And people like that, they're very meticulous. They're very careful in their work. And so, yeah, it's probably a huge potential resources for paleontologists.
0: (laughs) Right, to have that group of older ladies with their brushes, you know, because that's pretty tedious work. But, you know, quilting is too. And if you sit around and are talking, it goes really fast.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, You mentioned Kirby Sieber and and his museum. And I know that we have a a geoscience center here in Grable that references a lot of that same work. What can people expect to find there at the Geoscience Center? Why should we stop by and check it out? Well,
1: that center was really uh, started by uh, Rowan Cliff Manual, and they cultivated friendships with a number of collectors in the area, uh, including Kirby. Kirby Kirby's probably the most important. And Kirby had re entered into the Hal Quarry in the early 90s. Like I say, had found some spectacular dinosaur remains. Well, it was because of that friendship between uh, Rowan Cliff Manuel and Kirby Siebert that Kirby recognized that these fossils were important to the Grable area and, and that so many of Gra- uh, Wyoming's classic dinosaurs have been removed and sent off to the Smithsonian or the American Museum or the Peabody Museum or what have you, that he voluntarily gave... Uh, some world-class casts of some of the dinosaurs that he had found. And so there's a Stegosaurus cast in there. There's a Camarasaurus cast. There's a cast of Big Al-2, the most complete dinosaur uh, uh, allosaur ever found anywhere in the world. There's also casts of dinosaur footprints that come from the Red Gulch site, which was loaned to the museum from the Smithsonian who came out and, again, through the uh, efforts of Rowan Cliff, they were able to uh, secure those donations. So we have world-class casts and other fossils. Fossils, for instance, donated by the Barbara Ann Green from her, her uh, grandfather's collection, Bill Green. He was a largely self-trained geologist who, I believe, worked for the old uh, standard oil refinery or perhaps the bentonite plant in his career in the 40s and 50s, early 60s but he he actually had found museum quality ammonites these marine organisms that swam in the oceans of the, of Wyoming and a number of other things and had donated them to the museum there's been some other things that have been donated but i think largely the the Bill Green collection and then uh the materials donated by Kirby those really are some exceptional Fossils or reproductions of fossils that you really couldn't find if you went to, uh, unless you ran into a really good museum.
0: Well, and I I like sending people to the Geoscience Center because I think it gives them a sense of just the geology of the area so that when they are looking out the window, they can kind of understand a little bit more what they're seeing. So what is something that people driving through Wyoming may not realize about our state or about us? Well, I think... I think a lot of perception
1: of people from out East is it's a state full of rubes, but we're not, we're intelligent people. We have a lot of interests. We have college educated people, self-educated people. And so people will come through and they'll see the incredible scenery. They may drive across the deserts and think, how can somebody live here? But they don't realize what's in that desert and what it has to offer. And, uh, if they don't stop and talk to the people, they don't understand, you know, the quality of, of folks who live in this state. I guess that's the one thing that sort of surprises me when I talk to people. It's like, how can you possibly live in that state? And they, they hear all the negative news, maybe about Wyoming. But there's, there's many, many positive things to be yeah. said about the people in this state.
0: Yeah, I agree. What is the hardest thing that you find about living in Wyoming?
1: Uh well, I don't know. I mean, I grew up here and so I was really looking forward to coming back. So I don't <laughs> find it too hard at all. I, I I guess, you know, as I as I sort of live my professional life, I, I tended to live in cities and college towns. So I do miss I was in, at Indiana University for nineteen years. So I, I, I my wife and I do miss the sort of culture that comes with with living in a college town. Uh so that would be the I guess the one thing that we would most miss. I think my wife, she plays uh, traditional Irish music. She's a fiddler and very good at it. I think she misses not having the sort of Irish sessions that she was used to. So that, would, if you were to ask her that, that's what she would say, I think. I think largely we're, we're both happy here and, and really feel like we're adapting um, back into this life.
0: Well, and we have all that same stuff. It's just spread out thin across the...
1: It just requires a little more commute time to get there
0: for sure. And what do you love most about Wyoming? I like the fact that so much of it is
1: federal land and you can you can walk and hike anywhere and almost anywhere and you don't have to worry about trespassing. You can go and be completely isolated away from people if that's what you choose to do. It's a sense of openness and freedom to to be able to walk or explore areas. And who knows
0: you might find a dinosaur track.
1: You're absolutely right. We know they're out there.
0: What a fascinating guest. And now on to today's Wyoming wildlife segment. Historic Medicine Bow is not only known for its role in the Bone Wars, the invention of the Western novel, and as a stop on our nation's first interstate highway. It's also on the very edge of Shirley Basin, which is a sea of sagebrush encircled by mountains. The Nature Conservancy considers this area to be one of the world's largest intact grasslands. And although it seems barren as you're zooming by, it's actually teeming with wildlife. You are guaranteed to see pronghorn antelope and probably prairie dogs standing guard at their mounds. But today's spotlight is on a little nocturnal creature that you and i will probably never see but they've been brought back from the brink of extinction in the shirley basin outside of medicine bow and i'm talking about the black-footed ferret these solitary critters live in decommissioned prairie dog holes they hunt at night and their main food source is the prairie dog that's why there's so many decommissioned prairie dog holes each one eats about 100 prairie dogs a year and in the summer the females give birth to a litter of one to six young called kits that they raise alone. By the fall the young go off on their own. In 1979 the black-footed ferret was declared extinct. A couple years later in 1981 at the Pitchfork Ranch outside of Matitsi, Wyoming a ranch dog named Shep brought a strange little mink-like carcass to his owner, Miss Lucille Hogg. She decided to take it to the local taxidermist and have it stuffed. According to an L.A. Times article, he took one look at it and said, I can't touch this. This is an endangered species. It's a black-footed ferret. So he called it into the game warden, and the story grew from there. Ten years later, through a captive breeding program, black-footed ferrets were reintroduced into their native habitats including the shirley basin unfortunately still today they're endangered because it's very difficult to prepare them for living in the wild and there's actually a really good national geographic show about this whole process according to the nature conservancy the ecological integrity of the shirley basin hinges on this little black-pawed predator And as a keystone species, its influence is even greater when its numbers are small. So that's the end of our adventure that's 65 million years in the making. I hope you enjoyed learning some about dinosaurs, the Bone Wars, and the Black-Footed Ferret, all related to Historic Medicine Bow, Wyoming. Thank you so much to my guest, Eric Qualley, for giving us insights into ancient Wyoming wildlife, You'll learn so much more about dinosaurs if you visit the Geoscience Center in Grable, as well as the Red Gulch dinosaur track site that he discovered. I talk about both of these in episode one. And thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast for more wonderful Wyoming in your feed. Check out the show notes with links on everything on the blog wyomingmy307.blogspot.com. If you have questions or suggestions, email wyomingmy307 at gmail.com. Follow on Instagram, wyomingmy307. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Bye!